I think sometimes we swing for the fences of these giant ideas of like, we're going to find liberty in our time or peace in our time or whatever these things are that we attach ourselves to. And every person whose life you can affect in a way that leads to a more positive place for them, that in and of itself is a victory. My guest today is an attorney out of Northern California. He's been practicing for over 22 years. And in the last year or two, he has been helping a lot of businesses who were affected by lockdowns. I'm very pleased to welcome Anthony Raimondo. Anthony, first question, of course, are you ready to roar? Of course. I had a feeling you would be. (laughs) Uh, Now, Anthony, before we get into all the work you've been doing, helping businesses and others affected by lockdowns and all this COVID hysteria, just want to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just start off telling us how you first sort of, when you first became politically aware and maybe give us the the cliff notes of how you got to this point where you are right now. Uh, Well, I would say in my younger days, I started off as a fairly avowed leftist. So I was born in 1971. So you can kind of figure out the time frame that by the time that I was in my late teens or early 20s, sort of all of the repression that I saw around me came from right wing sources. You know, I grew up in kind of the sweet spot of the PMRC and things like that. So uh, probably my first real political awareness when I was 19 years old, I worked for the California Public Interest Research Group, which was a nonprofit operated by Ralph Nader. They did a lot of like environmental and consumer protection kind of stuff. And that was sort of an awakening for me. And I got involved in a a fair amount of sort of, I would say, fairly mainstream left-wing activism through my, uh, my college years. Um, after college, I did uh, a year of law school and was kind of uncertain about whether to be a lawyer. So I went back, I took a year off and went back to political work. And I actually worked for the, the Democratic Party, helping uh, a lady named Jane Harmon get elected to the um, California State Assembly. And from there, I applied for a job uh, as the primary campus organizer at UCLA, uh, a job which this is a big political awakening moment for me. They gave to a guy who had spent the entire campaign in an office making coffee copies and like delivering coffee to people while I had been out actually getting people to vote for the candidate. Um, so I didn't get that job and I ended up going to work for another nonprofit, which I did for a while. That wasn't a very good experience and I got kind of disillusioned on politics and decided to go back to law school. Um, after law school, the first job I had out of law school, I went to Bosnia uh, and worked as an elections monitor. Um, on municipal elections in Bosnia, uh, which I would say was probably a fairly like significant political moment for me in terms of understanding the machinery and mechanisms of democracy, as well as uh, being involved in working on this very large scale multi-government project. How, how does something like that come about where, where you suddenly find yourself in Bosnia monitoring elections? It's, it's not, not the normal thing you hear that you know, one of your peers did you know, right after college or right after law school. Um, I was in my third year of law school, and they put out a job announcement through these internal campus. Uh, they had these like bulletin boards back then. This is like early internet days. I graduated in 97, I believe it was. 
So we didn't really have, we had campus-wide email, but it was very rudimentary. But our career services office put out an announcement that uh, the State Department was recruiting people to go work on elections in Bosnia. And it was as simple as I thought it sounded cool. So (laughs) I'd worked on um, elections and get out the vote campaigns and things like that in my more activist days. So I figured I was qualified for it. Um, how the law school got the gig was uh, the lady who was an attorney working for the State Department, who was kind of in charge of the recruiting for this project, was a graduate of our law school. So she put the announcement out through the law school. So I applied for the job. I got hired for the job. And actually, my, my mother still reminds me of this, that the day of my law school graduation, I was on a plane to Sarajevo. And my family had flown out using non-refundable plane tickets wow. to see my graduation <laughs> that I did not attend. All right, Anthony. So why, why don't you take us kind of, uh, you know, to, to the present day? Well, maybe not quite to the to you working on the lockdowns, but just maybe get into a little bit more of the of the kind of law you were working on and and kind of how you found your passion in the in the legal industry. Sure. I started out my career as an attorney as a public defender. I kind of kicked around for I want to say maybe a year and a half or so after law school because I I still it sounds like a strange thing after having you know borrowed money and gone to to three years of law school I had some amount of ambivalence about being a lawyer and what direction I wanted to go in um, but I ended up deciding that what I really wanted to do was what I had originally gone to law school to do which is I wanted to be a public defender and kind of it sounds somewhat cliche and stereotypical but I wanted to actually push back on the government and keep people out of jail. Um, so I got offered a job, um, as a court appointed criminal defense attorney, uh, here in Fresno, which is where I am right now, um, and started my career there. The first firm that I worked with was a contract firm with the County that did conflict of interest cases when the public defender couldn't represent somebody, which actually happens quite often. And then from there, I got recruited by the actual County public defender and worked for the County public defender for a while. Um, for a number of different reasons, I became very unhappy with being a public defender. And I think probably two things really affected me. Number one, um, I became very aware that I was pretty much a cog in a big machine that was just processing people through the system. Right? When you're working for the public defender's office, you're working for the government. And I realized that they expected us to work more for the judges and the system than to work for our clients. And I had a, a very disillusioning experience where uh, some colleagues of mine and I had figured out a way that we could get people their driver's licenses back. This is when I was a young lawyer working a, a misdemeanor courtroom. And when you work in a misdemeanor courtroom in a city of any size in California, you're deluged with suspended license violations. They're misdemeanors, but they're actually pretty brutal misdemeanors for poor people because the first offense at that time, I don't know what it is now, but at that time, the first offense was $960 fine. The second offense was a $1,250 fine. And if your license was suspended for DUI, there was mandatory jail time that went along with it. So they were actually pretty severe uh, violations. And we would see these people who would come in over and over again for driving on a suspended license um, who, like, they had to drive. I mean, this, this is California. Like, there's no meaningful public transit here. And people got to work. They, they have to drive to survive. But we would meet these people that couldn't really ever get a driver's license back. Either they were so crushed by all the fines that they owed, or a lot of times on these DUIs, they'd be DUIs that were like 10 years old and somebody didn't go to a court mandatory class or they didn't do something the court required them to do. And they would end up in this limbo place in the system where the case was too old for the problem to be corrected. And so they were just in this permanent state of suspended license. So I had um, gotten a local traffic, one of the traffic clerks who worked down the hall from us, I had actually 
worked some magic and gotten him out of a second time DUI, which probably saved his job. So he told me that anything I ever needed from the traffic department that I could, I could get. So in, when you're in a misdemeanor department, that's usually where they start the new judges out. So they're not very experienced. And so I had convinced the judge in our courtroom and soon my colleagues convinced the judges in the other misdemeanor courtrooms that they could recall these old cases out of county limbo, most of them in collections for unpaid fines, that they could actually order the traffic department to send those cases down to our department and we could eliminate all these problems. We could get classes re-referred if they needed to take like a DUI class or most of it, like I said, was unbelievable amount of fines. And at that time, our county jail here locally was under a federal uh, court civil rights order because of overcrowding. So we would have, this sounds strange to people aren't in the system, every judge has a little book where they can convert fines to jail time. I know we're not supposed to have debtors prisons, but they can actually, there's, they have a formula for how much money you owe the county that you can serve as jail time instead of Fine. Which is such such backwards government logic because it costs money to keep someone in jail. So instead of paying t- taking a fine, they're actually going to do something that will cost the state more money. Perfect. Right. And these are fines. I mean, these are again, these are desperately poor people. These are fines they're yeah. never going to collect. But we knew because again, we're working within the system every single day. They have some gang member on a multiple homicide that they want to hold in the county jail, and then you walk in with a couple thousand dollars of old traffic fines. They're not going to hold you. They're, they're not, you're not even going to see the inside of a jail cell. So what would happen is we would get the judges to convert thousands of dollars of fines into jail time. We'd send our clients across the street from the courthouse. They'd go to the county jail, check in. They'd get fingerprinted and immediately released. Stamp the paper, jail time served, fine wiped out. And it got to the point where every day when I came back to the office, there would be like people waiting for me in the reception area, the public defender's office, like excited, showing me the printout from the DMV of their new temporary license because they finally got a driver's license after believing they would never have a driver's license again for the rest of their lives. Like literally people in tears to show me that they had gotten their license before I had even finished my day in court. It was really, really satisfying. And then our, um, our supervisor found out what we were doing. And our supervisor walked across the street from our office to the courthouse, met with all the judges, and told them that they were not allowed to call cases out of collections, that those cases were not in their jurisdiction. This is a public defender supervisor. Like, we're getting our clients out of trouble, which is what we thought we were supposed to be doing. And told the judges they couldn't do this and put a stop to the whole thing. Um, He eventually later actually got promoted to being the head public defender for this entire county. But it was very, like, disillusioning to me because I'm like, okay. Who do we really work for? Do we work for our clients or do we work for the county? And the answer was we work for the county. Um, And then at the same time, I had a couple of cases that were really, really bad, like child sexual abuse type cases. And I realized I just didn't have a stomach for that kind of work. And it takes, I have a lot of respect for people that do the work of being a public defender because having done it myself, I realized how difficult it is because so much of what you do is just wallowing in human misery. And um, right around this time, my wife and I had had our first child and I needed to make more money and I wasn't happy with the job. So I started looking around and I ended up getting a, uh, a job with a very small law firm that specialized in primarily agricultural labor issues representing farmers. Um, and from there, I developed an expertise in agricultural labor laws. We're in the Agricultural Center of California here. Um, and I've spent most of the last 20 years or so representing small family farms, um, 
small businesses of various types. It's not just agriculture. We do a lot more now, but um, mostly small, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, mostly family businesses on a wide range of regulatory issues. So government agency, compliance stuff, uh, labor stuff, um, just a, a wide range of different types of litigation defense and defense of government action. So that's what I've been doing since then. And uh, I've just figured it out actually today. I think uh, almost eight years, it'll be eight years ago in June, um, I started my own law firm. I was a partner in a bigger firm and I jumped ship from there uh, and started my own firm. So now I have four lawyers that work for me and a total of, I think, 11 or 12 employees. And we do what we've always been doing, which is representing small business, family business. Amazing. And that ties right into the last couple of years. So before you dive directly into uh, the work you were doing to help people during lockdowns, I just want to kind of go back to the Anthony Romano of two years ago. What what was going through your head when there first started to be, well, well not whispers, it was just a, a hammer came down uh, with the lockdowns out there in California uh, that seemingly came out of nowhere if you weren't paying attention to, to what was going on in the world. But uh, this was nothing. This is something that we had never really seen before. We'd, we'd heard people, you know, Alex Jones type saying, oh, martial law, this martial law, that. But then suddenly it was here at our doorstep. So what was going through your mind? I wasn't really sure what was happening at the beginning of this whole COVID hysteria, which I think most of us were, were in that position. And when our first lockdown order came down locally, which I think was part of the state shelter in place, if I remember, it's a little difficult to remember the details of how they did all this. Um, but I, the first thing I looked at is what am I going to do about my business? Because I have my own business and my own employees to deal with. And I realized when I read through the orders, like, because we were a law firm, we got the magic wand blessing that we were essential. And that we were going to be allowed to stay open, which I was grateful for because I need to make a living. And also my clients need me. I, you know, Again, we had a whole lot of issues related with labor. We were getting, I mean, our phones were just ringing off the hook with clients, not knowing what to do, what safety, you know, do they have to provide masks, leave, testing. How does all this work? And the rules were changing really daily at that point. Um, but I was very upset, again, because partially because of what I do for a living, that I'm seeing all these businesses in town you know, not getting that government blessing that you're essential and being told that they have to close. And meanwhile, everybody's funneling into Home Depot and the grocery stores and all this. And I'm like, well, uh, it was very troubling to me. And so I, um, I actually went to a protest downtown um, here in Fresno that a bunch of small businesses put together that was just a keep Fresno open kind of protest. And I met some people down there and they told me their stories about what was happening to them and their fears of not being able to make a living and not being able to feed their families and how nervous they were by this. And then right around the same time, um, a local business here that's a little breakfast restaurant, you know, like, you know, waffles, and bacon and eggs kind of place, made the, new, the local news because he had stayed open despite the lockdowns. And there had been a big incident at the restaurant because a bunch of the customers had blockaded the front doors to prevent code enforcement from coming in and issuing him a citation and trying to shut him down. And actually, a, a Vietnam vet who was in his 70s got arrested, like standing in the, in the path of the police and not letting the police escort the code enforcement officers into this restaurant. And it was a really powerful piece of video footage that kind of went viral locally and was all our local news here. And I just realized to myself that I had to do something. And I didn't know the answer to any of this stuff, but I thought to myself, what do I know how to do? I know how to defend businesses against regulatory enforcement. 
So I started reaching out to people that I had met through the protest and just people I knew locally. I started just putting out the word in town that if you get, if you stay open and you get cited, call me, I'm not going to charge you any fees. We will defend you and we will fight these citations for you and at least make sure that you get your right to due process respected. So we just started getting calls from different businesses from, we actually ended up representing that gentleman. Um, He had another lawyer originally on the first citation, but they went after him because he was like the poster boy. So they had like, literally there would be like three code enforcement pickup trucks in the parking lot outside this little restaurant, um, uh, like staking him out and harassing him for being open. You have to understand where I am in California, in Fresno, if you know Central California at all, this is like the Appalachia of California. This is the poorest part of California. And we have lots of urban blight and urban, like lots of things that code enforcement could have been doing other than harassing restaurants. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And we represented a, um, a jujitsu studio here locally. We represented uh, a couple of hair salons, uh, a laser tag um, studio that actually, strangely enough, the uh, alcohol control board went after. And we just started appealing all these citations and daring them to try to litigate them. And it just stacked up and stacked up and stacked up. And we were very fortunate that um, in the midst of all this, we had a mayoral election here in Fresno. And we had a change from a very pro-lockdown mayor to a mayor who ironically was a guy that politically I've not been supportive over over the years. He's our former police chief, and I've never really been a big fan. But he was very anti-lockdown. And one of the attorneys who works for me had some connection to him and said, hey, I think I can get you a Zoom call with the mayor. So I took him up on it and I ended up having a really productive Zoom call from the mayor. And I actually, I used a lot of data and a lot of stuff that I had actually gotten from Twitter. Um, I don't know if you know who Ian Miller is, who's done all these great graphs on masks and lockdowns and stuff. But I put like a little PowerPoint together for this Zoom call. And um, the mayor was very sympathetic to the business community, very supportive of what we were doing. But due to some sort of political struggle between the mayor's office and the city council here in town, the city council had taken control of code enforcement away from the mayor and put it in their own hands. So he was very sympathetic, but he's like, I can't really help you with this. Um, So we basically played chicken with um, the city officials here for quite some time. And eventually they dropped all of the citations. They just didn't have any capacity to actually litigate these things and go through what they have to go through. The, we still have a couple that are still outstanding. The original citation that was issued and lost by that one, that first restaurant, we actually have a case at the Court of Appeal right now that we're still fighting with them and still trying to see if we can get, get rid of it. Uh, but the rest of them, they walked away from. Uh, there's one other that they've kind of just gone dark and they won't talk to us about, but I keep telling the client, hey, they're not trying to take your money, so you're winning. Um, and it was a really powerful experience getting to meet these people who I really saw them as heroes in our community, that they were the ones who were willing to stand up and put themselves in harm's way and refuse to comply with these lockdowns. It was a really powerful experience. And these are the kind of businesses that were so small. Like these are people that would never hire me normally because they don't have the resources to hire a lawyer and they don't have, they're not, they're even too small to be below kind of what I do. Um, but such great people and such courageous people. Um, the one guy told me that he said, look, if I close my business, I have a three-year-old daughter. And if I close my business, she goes hungry. I know that 
I know that 100%. If I close my doors, I have no money and she doesn't. But if I stay open, they can give me a ticket anytime they want. But I'm still going to have business and I can still feed my daughter. He's like, so they can give me, I don't care how many tickets they give me. My choice is I know we starve or maybe something works out in my, in my favor down the road. It's an easy choice for me. They, they can t- find me no matter how many times they want to find me. I'm going to stay open because I have that little girl. And that was a really powerful moment for me. Um, and they were just such amazing, impressive people. And just and, and by the way, people who, who were patriotic in a way that my cynical self normally would have like probably been turned off by. I mean, these were very much like American flag waving, love America types that I had kind of gotten cynical towards. And they sort of reawakened in me some, some love of community and country. And like, it was very infectious how positive they were through, through these, these difficulties. So that's kind of how I got involved in fighting the lockdown. All right, kitty cats, I need to butt in here for just one minute to tell you about all the ways you can support your favorite podcast network here, the Lions of Liberty Network. You can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where we have all sorts of tiers where you can get all sorts of goodies, including monthly calls with myself, Brian and John, all of the hosts here at Lions of Liberty. You can produce your own episodes at various tiers. You can even get your product or podcast, whatever it may be mentioned right here on this show as well as all of the bonus content comes right to that Patreon feed. And I know many of you are Patreon adverse for whatever reason. I'm not going to judge. That's why we also have a Locals page, lionsofliberty.locals.com. You don't have as much of variety, as much of the tiers there on Locals, but you do get all of that bonus content, including live editions of most of my interviews. We have bonus shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Good Morning Bleephead. Sometimes I say the bleep, sometimes I drop the app bomb. Just depends. But either way, Brian is slamming you hard five days a week with his rants every single morning on that show. So much great content for as little as $5 a month. Again, you can find that over at Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or on locals at lionsofliberty.locals.com. Support your favorite Liberty podcasters. Help us keep this thing going was there an enforcement a real enforcement mechanism in place other than i know that you know those agents would show up at certain businesses but i mean it sounds like that for the most part these local politicians never really dreamed of the idea that at least on any kind of large scale these businesses would even consider staying open and consider resisting these fines i think they didn't think anybody was going to stay open And when people started staying open, I think they thought they could just issue people these tickets and people would either pay it or give up. I don't think they ever contemplated the possibility that a law firm would stand up and say, no, we're going to represent these people. Uh, Because the fines were like $1,000. Like the legal fees for something like this would have been many times over what uh, it would have cost. And I don't think they ever imagined that like a lawyer would represent people for free on, on, on this issue. And there were, I mean, there were so many things that were like comical levels of incompetence. They were issuing so many different shutdown orders. They couldn't actually do the paperwork correctly and get the right order on the ticket. So a lot of the tickets were procedurally defective or they were served improperly, meaning they weren't delivered to the right person at the business in order to provide proper notice within the requirements of due process. Um, I mean, it was when we started appealing them. First of all, they barely had any mechanism set up to do hearings on these things because you have to remember code enforcement usually is for like urban blight or like graffiti properties or neglected properties. 
usually either the people abandon the property or they just pay the fine. I mean, the, the people don't challenge these things very often. So what hearing mechanism they had, they really didn't know how to use. And then on top of it, they didn't think in advance enough to actually set it up for Zoom, which is what everything had to be at that time. So in the beginning, they literally did not have the physical capacity or any sort of internal structure through which they could even hold a hearing. And they seem to have forgotten. And I kept reminding these business people like, okay, there's a lot of things that are falling apart in our country right now, but there's some very basic things like the idea of due process. The government does not get to walk into your business and say, you violated the law, pay me. They have to give you notice and opportunity to be heard before they take your money. And they have to meet some burden of proof to prove their case. And I mean, again, the, the level of incompetence by these local city authorities was like Keystone Cops level. Because they just assumed they could flex their muscle and people would give up. And when that did, that's one of the reasons the whole thing fell apart. Is I think they somebody somewhere along the way, whether it was a county council or a city attorney or somebody, started looking at these things and they're like, oh my God, these are so hopelessly defective. Before we even get the, to the substance of whether or not you can lock people down, these things are all going to get dismissed because they're procedurally defective. Uh, and I think you know that incompetence really uh, helped them. Yeah, I think that's such an important takeaway here is that, you know, I don't think that all government officials are just necessarily bumbling idiots. Uh, some are probably intentionally imposing a lot of this, these hardships upon us. Uh, but when it comes down to the local level, a lot of these politicians are just sort of normalish people who stumbled, maybe stumbled into a role as a politician. They're not necessarily they don't necessarily know the full scope of the law of even even their own dictates or their own regulations that they try to create, how they could actually be enforced. So sometimes in your case, it basically just took one person, you, to decide, no, we're going to at least show people that you don't have to just fold over to this stuff. They There is something called due process. They do have to follow it. And most of the time, at least a lot of the time that you were finding, if you actually dig into the details, to the fine details and the procedural details, as is your job as a lawyer, really, and someone's actually willing to do that and take the time to do it and, t- and take these businesses under their wing, uh, then it, it can really be obviously not, not thing what you were doing is easy, but there is a way to fight back at the local level if you really focus. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I think a lot of us tend to get into these ideas of like these sort of, you know, government authoritarianism and conspiracy and all this kind of thing. And I think it's important not to overestimate the uh, competence of your adversaries. And realize that even no matter how insane they become, they actually do have certain rules that they have to follow and that they're kind of stuck with, like due process and some of these procedural issues. And a lot of times it's easier to win a fight legally on some sort of procedural ground than it is to actually win it on the on the substance of it. Because whoever that judicial officer is of whatever level, it's much easier for them to say, well, I'm not going to enforce this citation because it's procedurally defective. There's something technically wrong with it and not have to decide that the government can't lock people down. Like one's a really big question and one's a really small technical question. And it's easier to win on those technical questions many times. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years dealing with various state and federal, I've dealt with almost every state and federal agency that you can think of. And one of the things I've learned about these processes, these compliance and regulatory processes is how much of it depends upon our cooperation on the simplest things like i have a case right now that just came in from the department of labor um and 
they've given us this long laundry list of documents they want from our client. And there's no way we can do it within the deadline they've given us. They just gave us some arbitrary deadline. We want this by this date. And so I was talking to one of my young attorneys about it. And I said, don't worry about it. Just tell them no and tell them to give you an extension. The worst case scenario is they're going to tell you they're going to issue a subpoena. And then you can go, oh, no, a subpoena. As a, as a lawyer, I've never seen a subpoena before. Whatever will I do? Because it'll take them longer to get what they want by initiating the formal process of a subpoena than just working with us. Because if they serve us with a subpoena, first of all, we can challenge the subpoena. And if they want to enforce the subpoena, then they have to go get a day in court, which takes a long time. And they're going to be months down the road to get what they want. And usually these things are driven by internal priorities. They're not driven by some sense of justice or even some sense of authoritarianism. What happens is there's some guy at the Department of Labor who has a supervisor that says, I want all of our cases closed within X number of days. So he thinks to himself, I got to get to the end of this road by X number of days. So on day one, when I'm issuing the document request, I need to give them a short deadline. And I need to put lots of pressure on them so that my supervisor doesn't yell at me. He's not thinking about the priorities of the government or the system or anything like that. He's thinking, I got a supervisor who's going to yell at me if this isn't done within this amount of time. And so much of this depends on our cooperation. I mean, one of the things that was frustrating when I was a public defender was realizing that as public defenders, we could have literally shut down the courthouse any day of the week and shut down the entire functioning of the criminal justice system just by pleading all of our clients not guilty and convincing all of them to demand their right to a jury trial because the system doesn't have the capacity for everyone to demand their right to a jury trial. They can't. There's not enough jurors. There's not enough courtrooms. They can't do it. They literally can't do it. That's why they offer plea bargains. It's not out of some sense of fairness or justice. It's they got to move a certain amount of this through the system or the whole system will collapse under its own weight because there's just there's too much. There's too much of it for the capacity that the system can handle. And this lockdown thing was a very good example of that on a smaller scale local level. You are lucky, I guess, to have a mayor who is sympathetic in your area. But I'm kind of curious if your work with these local businesses, did that raise the ire of others, like whether it's city council or the code enforcement? I mean, did you feel any any of the heat or any of the backlash for the work that you were trying to do? Not really. I, I got some side eyes from some other lawyers around town, which I found kind of amusing. But I've always been a little bit of an outsider and a maverick. I mean, you know, I have my own business, so and I have clients that are really wonderful and loyal to me, so I don't really need to make anybody else happy other than them. And I think I sort of have a reputation around town of being a somewhat difficult personality. And, you know, um, I, I just, I don't walk in those circles where it would matter to me what they think of me. Right. Um, and there was really nothing they could do to me. And I mean, I've been... I've taken on a lot of very unpopular and controversial causes over the course of my career um, and have been targeted for it. So it's, I mean, it's almost like that, you know, I'm still going through, I've been fighting to protect my license to practice law over things that happened between like 2010 and 2013 since 2014. And so that's all retaliatory based on stuff that I did to defend clients or things that I did that challenged powerful and connected organizations in California that, you know, are not things that I did that were politically popular or win you a lot of friends other than the people that you do it for. And so, I mean, I've been in that crosshairs where they've gone after everything I've worked for and tried to shut me down for so many years now that 
I, I mean, I'm almost ambivalent about it now. It's like, okay, well, they're just going to do what they do and I'm going to do what I do and we'll see how long it lasts. Anthony, I know um, obviously the the official lockdowns for the most part are, are pretty much over. Finally in California, they, they seem like they went on forever in, in a lot of California, or at least in Los Angeles. But I know you, as of late, you've shifted some of your own efforts towards helping people uh, facing vaccine mandates of various kinds. So do you want to just dig into when you started kind of working on that issue, when you, when you started realizing, okay, this is going to be something people need help with too, and what kind of the scope of what you've been dealing with is as far as how people are trying to resist mandates, whether it's at the government level or, or the private level? So what, um, what ended up happening is we're actually, I'm very lucky to live where I live in the middle of central California because I think that the momentum for all the COVID hysteria here went away a lot faster than it did in places like LA or the, or the Bay area. I mean, you know, people here stopped wearing masks a while ago, even when the mandates weren't placed, you'd still, it's still, it's still there in LA as far as I know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, you know, even though they just, they supposedly just lifted it, but it changed nothing here. I mean, I, I, I've been walking into like most, almost every store in town here without a mask on for many, many months now. And after they finally gave up on their, I think they did two rounds of lockdowns here. And then they finally gave up on that because it was so unpopular here. And I often describe uh, the San Joaquin Valley, which is where I live here in California, as the, uh, the West Berlin of California. You know, we're surrounded on all sides by communists. And we're like this little beacon of freedom here, uh, compar- comparatively speaking. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when they, when the governor just recently said no more mask mandates to here, it was like, oh, okay, well, I guess everyone finally caught up to where we are. So <laughs> the lockdown thing became, um, less of an imperative because again, eventually it became so unpopular and it was such a bad look for our local authorities and they weren't getting anywhere with it, with us appealing all of their citations that it just kind of evaporated. And then I started hearing about these, um, vaccine mandates and, you know, different employers. Um, wanting to force vaccines on their employees. So I started just kind of digging into that and it really came, it happened very organically and people had heard about what I'd been doing for the lockdowns. So people just started calling me and saying, hey, I heard you're this guy who doesn't like any of this COVID stuff and they want to fire me from my job because I won't get a vaccine. Can you help me? It probably is hard to find an attorney that you know will be willing to take this stuff on. So, I mean, especially in California where, well, at least maybe not your part of California as much, but many people in California, their default position is, I, I'm going to assume this person is a little COVID crazy before I even talk to them. So it probably is kind of a really difficult process to, to find an attorney unless they've probably already heard of you from lockdowns so in this case that is willing to take on cases like this. Unlike what Hollywood tells us, attorneys by nature tend to be very cowardly people. They like their membership at the country club and they like to be accepted among all the nice people and all that kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of attorneys are reluctant to take on unpopular causes. I, um, I volunteer, I've been volunteering for over a decade here for one of our local um, school programs that has what they call a law lab where they kids do like a public policy project and they recruit local lawyers to be like mentors to help guide them through the project. So I've been doing that for a very long time. And this past year, when this last fall, when they were sending out all the call for, for volunteers, I of course volunteered as I always do. And they sent us out an email saying, Oh, by the way, if you guys, you guys all have to get vaccinated if you want to come to the school and mentor at the school. And I immediately just hit reply all on my email. There's this laundry list of lawyers on the thing. And I said, you know what? I've always been 
supportive of this program and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in the program. But I think vaccine mandates are un-American, unconstitutional, and immoral, and I won't participate. I'm sorry, you'll have to take me off the list. I'm out of the program. I, within five minutes, I get a phone call from the main teacher who's known me all these years. And she's like, don't worry about it. You know, you're not going to have to get a vaccine. It's okay. But I start getting emails back, reply alls back to me from all these lawyers. And they're all just like, how dare you say that? You know, it's vaccines are forever are, are save lives and it's safe and effective. And it was like parroting all the like mainstream ideas um, about the vaccines. Uh, and then I got one, one email from like, a, a private email from somebody who was like, you know, I really agree with what you had to say. Thank you for speaking up. I'm glad you spoke up. And my response to him was like, okay, well, maybe next time you should speak up too. So there's not just one person. Like, we got to stick together in this thing. It doesn't help to just privately contact me and say, hey, I, I appreciate what you did. Speak up in that moment. Like, that's all we got. Um, so, yeah, so the word got around that I guess I was the crazy COVID guy. And so I started um, doing some research on it. And there, you know, this hasn't happened before, so there's not a lot out there that you can go by. But I quickly found out that it's exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, in most circumstances to get a medical exemption, because very quickly they started putting pressure on doctors that they could get in trouble with like regulatory boards and licensing bodies if they started writing people medical exemptions. Um, I helped one um, local uh, chiropractor who was giving people medical exemptions. And I helped him come up with a template for it. Um, so I sort of shifted gears from there more to the religious exemptions. And I, I came up with a, um, I started communic communicating with people both like over Twitter as well as, because I put some stuff out on Twitter about the lockdown stuff. So I started getting people from all over the country reaching out to me about these vaccine mandates. And I just started, um, you know, some of it, I cr I'll admit, I cribbed from other people and plagiarized from stuff that I thought was good and um, came up with what I think is a pretty good template for a request for a religious exemption to the vaccine mandate. And I would say, I mean, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but I, I can only think of one or two that got denied. Virtually all of them were granted. Um, and so I've started, I've helped in helping people with these vaccine issues to varying degrees. I mean, most extreme degree would be, we have a case here that we've actually taken on where we're suing the employer for wrongful termination for suing a lady who they fired because she wouldn't get the vaccine. I have another one who's a truck driver who his vaccine case wasn't that great, but they actually, um, when he refused to get the vaccine, they stopped payment on his bonus check. Um, so we're suing them for unpaid wages because you can't stop payment on some check like that. Um, and so, you know, we've just been trying to help people in different creative ways that we can sometimes directly related to the vaccine, or sometimes we find other things that their employers have done that are unlawful in connection with it, um, and tried to help them that way. And I've gotten some college students exemptions from vaccine requirements. Um, and then I recently connected with, um, Joni, Lady Spalding, who I think you had on your show. Yeah. Um, just recently. I connected with her group, which is trying to stop college mandates. And I've been trying to help them. I had a great conversation last week with a lady who's uh, involved in that movement uh, about some things that we can do to try to file some federal court lawsuits to stop some of these mandates at some of the schools. So I'm just trying to do what I can to help whoever I can with what resources I have. Um, and I don't have unlimited resources. I mean, in a perfect world, I would love to take on all these people as clients and file a million lawsuits. But 
I have to make a living and I have a business to run and employees to pay. And um, so I have to kind of pick and choose where I, where I, uh, where I jump in, but um, stuff like the templates for the religious exemptions and some of the, 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 I've, I've reviewed some people's where they've written something up themselves. They're like, Hey, will you look at this and tell me what you think? And I give them some feedback and some suggestions on that. Uh, and I've been doing all of that um, just for free for people. And I tell people all the time, I don't want anything from them. I don't expect anything from them. Only thing I ask people to do is get back to me and let me know how it went so I can keep learning, like what's working for us. What's, what are, what's actually saving somebody's job or saving somebody's school. And like, I, I've gotten so much more reward from this than I would have ever imagined. I mean, I had a college student who was going into his senior year in college. He thought he was going to get thrown out of school because he wouldn't take the vaccine. And he used my template and got a religious exemption and sent me this really excited email. Like, thank you so much. I get to go to school. I get to finish my education. And when I first talked to him, he was like, I'm going to lose everything I've worked for over the last like three and a half years because they want me to get a shot and I don't want to get the shot. And, um, I don't ask people why they don't want to get it because I'm very much of the belief that because I don't want to should be enough. Like what more answer do you need that I don't want to, you know, this is crazy what's happening. So it's much like the lockdown thing. It's really kind of happened organically. And it was just me trying to figure out what do I know and what can I, what can I do to help different individuals that approach me with their particular situation. And the more jobs I can save or the more school opportunities I can save or businesses that I can help, like that's all just been unbelievably satisfied. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our good friends, Carlos and Vanessa Abelar and their incredible CBD company. Paloma Verde CBD. You can find them at palomaverdecbd.com. And there is simply nowhere else you should be turning to for your CBD products, whether you use them for aches and pains, for dealing with a little of that insomnia, or just general stress. CBD is a fantastic resource without having to worry about getting all high or anything like that, uh, like you would from the THC component. Uh, this is CBD is purely the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. Uh, extremely helpful for all, all sorts of things. Also for your pets, it can really help your pets too. And you can find everything you could possibly need. Tinctures, gummies, the gummies, my God, the gummies are delicious. You can find them all over at Paloma Verde CBD. CBD.com. But the best part is you got to use promo code ROAR and you will get 25% off any order over $75 and free shipping. That's right. And free shipping. Check it out. Paloma Verde CBD.com. Do not forget to use that discount code ROAR for a tremendous discount. How much have you found employers are have been able or are willing to attempt anyway? to push back against religious exemptions. Uh, obviously, it might be a little more cut and dry for them when they have a medical exemption and, and a doctor is saying, you can't force this. Uh, but I, I'm kind of curious, like, because from my point of view, your belief is your religion, no matter no matter where it may come from. Uh, but I think for, from the perspective of a lot of these companies, you know, I hear a lot of stories of people saying they had to like get a letter from their pastor or prove they go to church every week or, or something like that. So are, are you finding companies attempting to push back on on people claiming uh, a religious belief? The biggest surprise that I've gotten all this uh, is how little pushback there is. I don't think a lot of employers heart is in this. I mean, as somebody who owns a business myself, like 
people are hard to find. Like people are hard to replace. Turnover is really bad for business. And I don't think there's very many businesses that really have their heart in the idea that they want to fire people over this. And I think a lot of these exemptions, at least anecdotally, the ones that I've been involved in, um, it seems like people are very quick. It, companies are very quick to say, yep, yeah, okay, you, got, you can have your exemption. Mm-hmm. Just because they want to be able to have something to say that like they can hang their hat on as to why they didn't fire this person. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to that. Some are more aggressive. I actually like the ones when they try to question people's belief. Because the reason the religious exemption is so powerful is because we have so many laws in this country about free expression of religion. And there's tons and tons and tons of case law. Uh, I found a really great one where the court talked about how even if you formulated your religious belief yesterday, it's still your religious belief. And, you know, the example I've had a few different people give back to their employers when their employers start questioning the legitimacy of their religious belief is if you have a a Jewish employee who wants to take off the observance of Rosh Hashanah, do you ask them how many times they've been to synagogue in the last year? Of course not. You, You would immediately be sued for religious discrimination and rightfully so. And you would lose 10 times out of 10, you would lose. So I think. There's power to be had in using some of this existing law. And religious freedom is so, and and anti-religious discrimination is so embedded in so much of our law that it's actually a really, really powerful weapon to use, especially when they push back and you push back. Mm. And you point out to them, you don't get to question the sincerity of my religious belief. And I think to the extent people have made mistakes with this, they've actually gotten too specific. You know, I see a lot of people who are avowed Christians, who are very pro-life, who really want to focus their attention on, you know, the use of fetal tissue and the vaccines and things like that. And the template that I have doesn't talk about that at all. The template that I have talks about how um, in a Christian belief system, the person's autonomy over their body is a really important thing, and the choice of what to do with your body is an important thing. And we kept, I deliberately kept it away from the idea of pro-life or pro-choice um, because I think that in some ways that's a trap because that opens the door to more questioning of the actual sincerity behind that belief. But like you know, even if you got every childhood vaccine and then you suddenly realized when you're 45 years old that you're pro-life and you don't want to utilize anything anymore that used fetal tissue in the research or development of it, like that doesn't make that any less sincere of a belief. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's, it's no less protected. And there's really not very much avenue in a serious way for an employer to be able to say, no, your belief is not sincere enough and get away with that. We haven't had to push that very hard in many cases. There's a couple we had to argue with um, um, employers or schools about. But for the most part, the minute you push back on that, and you start giving them examples like the, the Judaism example that I gave you of, of observing a religious holiday. Like, when has anybody ever questioned the sincerity of somebody's religion? Well, are you really a practicing Jew? Like, do you really need that day off? Because... I don't think I've ever heard you talk about being Jewish before, right? I mean, if you just think it's gross when you think about it from a discrimination standpoint, it's it's painfully obvious that that they can't get away with that. So I think the religious one scares them a little bit. 
And the, I think that your your case, your situation here is a, a great example of how getting your own situation, getting yourself in a good place, in your case, running your own business, your own successful law firm, and and having this team of lawyers, having the ability to pay for all that is what in a, has enabled you to you know, have the resources to go out and help other people. So I think it's such a good, good example of taking care of yourself first, taking care of your own house first, getting your own house in order. Cause if, if you didn't have your house in order, if you, you know, there's no way you could be helping people on this scale. Maybe you can give some people some advice, but you wouldn't be able to do, do what you've been doing right now. Um, and that kind of leads me to uh, another subject that I can pretend I'm teeing you up for it innocently, but, but why, why do it? Because you've been going after uh, pretty hard lately. A lot of people involved in the libertarian parties, particularly in the Mises caucus. And, but I know you did dabble in that caucus for some amount of time. So, when did when did that dabbling turn into you know what, what seems to be from my point of view some some level of animosity at least that you seem to have towards i don't know if it's specific people in that in that caucus or just the movement overall what is what what's basically the the source of of your how, how do we say the source of your uh your i don't want to say rage but the source of your commentary let's put it that way lately i think ire is probably a better word than rage. ire that's Maybe that's the word i was looking for <laughs> Part of it is my own my own baggage from my own days involved in, in political activism because they remind me so much of so many of the people that I knew in the sort of leftist activist stuff that I did as a young person. And I got very disillusioned by all that, and I, I walked away from all of that. In fact, most of my life, I've been a decline to state voter. I've had no, no party affiliation whatsoever. And, you know, for many years, I have two, two children. My, my son's one's about to turn 21. The other one just turned 18. So like when they were growing up, like I was really focused on my family and I was focused on building my business, as you mentioned a little bit ago. And so I probably was less political then than I am, than I am now. So what happened was um, I had started, I would say before COVID, I had started kind of looking into some of these ideas of libertarianism because some of it sounded really interesting to me. And I had read like a little bit of Rothbard and Hoppe, um, probably like, I don't know, 2018, 2019. And I started, you know, listening. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I travel a lot for work. So I started checking out some of these uh, libertarian podcasts that were out there. And I did find myself like, okay, I agree with a lot of what these people are having to say about individual rights, about you know, anti-war, like a lot of this seems to make sense to me. And I kind of ratcheted it up when the whole lockdown thing started. I actually had listened to um, part of the problem with Dave Smith, and I had heard him start talking about the, the LP and the Mises Caucus and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, you know what, these people are going to be into what I'm doing. And maybe instead of just one lawyer in Fresno doing this, we can figure out there. These are political organizer type people. Maybe they can help organize something where we can find lawyers in some other towns or more lawyers in my town. And maybe we can expand this and we can actually really help a much larger number of people. But these people seem to be seem to have an affinity for what I'm trying to do. So I joined the LP and I paid whatever their fee was. They made me a member. And then I joined the Mises Caucus and I donated some money to them. And I started participating in these California Mises Caucus Zoom calls. And it was somewhat disappointing because what I got from them 
I was all excited to like tell them what I was doing. And I think I, I thought there would be all this energy and really they were like, Oh, that's wonderful that you're doing that. That's great. Now let's talk about the pizza party we're going to have at the LP convention and, and, and how we're going to pay to get speakers there. And I'm like, well, wait, I mean, who cares about the LP convention and winning some committee seat in the LP? Like we got stuff to do. And it just, the, the, the Zoom calls became these very like tiresome, self-congratulatory, kind of patting yourself on the back kind of uh, events where frankly people were overstating their own importance. And it was all, all of it was focused on winning internal positions within the Libertarian Party. And I just, I couldn't think of any less important thing to do in the face of these lockdowns and things that I was seeing in my own community than try to win some committee position at the Libertarian Party. And I don't even remember what these titles are, the uh, executive committee or whatever the heck that was that they were trying to do to take over the Libertarian But I just, there, this whole idea of like, we got to take over the Libertarian Party is like, it just seems so useless to me. And I was just about fed up with it and I just about had enough of it. Um, when, uh, but I, I was, my plan was to stick it out through the, the California convention which that year was in Visalia, which is like 45 minutes from here. So I was going to go down and check out this convention and see what it was all about, see if maybe I could find some like-minded people down there. And then I participated in a Mises Caucus donor call because I had given money, so they invited me on to this Zoom call for their donors. Uh, can I use names here, or should I not use names? You can if you want. I mean, it's all, it's all up to you. The, the, I don't mind. I mean, my name's on here. People can say whatever they want about me. Yeah, no, I, I have no issues with it. So you do you do whatever you want. <laughs> so Michael, Michael Heiss, who, again, I don't know all the history, but he's either founder or some central figure in the Mises caucus. Yeah, he started the caucus. Led the Zoom call. And I'm listening to this guy, and he could not have been more excited. And what he was so excited was about is they had finally raised enough money that whatever internal committee they had had authorized to pay him a salary so he could quit his job at the dispensary and work full-time for the Mises Caucus. And it was just so gross to me because it was so self-interested and it was the same, forgive me, political hack bullshit of people pursuing this activist identity for their own benefit and their own purpose, not to serve others, to help others. to it, it was purely, it just crystallized to me that this whole libertarian thing was about a bunch of people that wanted to be a member of something and a part of something that they could pretend was bigger than themselves. Like they're doing this great thing and wanting to have status in this little tiny club. And I, I often describe libertarianism as people shouting at each other in a broom closet, which is really what it is. And I just saw it as like, these are all people who all they want to do is talk and talk this crazy rhetoric, but they don't ever actually do anything. And at the same time, I'm seeing all these libertarians on Twitter who are like, the cops come to my house, they're going to meet the business end of my gun. And I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah, you're going to pull out a gun and shoot a cop. Sure you are. You know, I mean, it just the whole thing just seems so childish and so ludicrous. So after that donor call, literally the next day, I deregistered from the Libertarian Party. I gave away my tickets to the convention. I pulled out of everything, and I'm like, this is not, this is not what I'm doing. I'm just going to go do my own thing and help people however I can, as many people as I can, but this is just a waste of time. And you know, I view belief in libertarianism 
the same way that I view belief in Santa Claus. It's nice. I mean, it's a nice idea, but I don't think it has any bearing on the real world. And I'm particularly sickened by the people that spew this like fiery, aggressive, revolutionary rhetoric while doing absolutely nothing. Right? I mean, I got turned off from Dave Smith, for example, because he's saying all this stuff during the lockdowns, like, you know, all this aggressive, crazy, you know, what does he call it? Spit that hot liberty fire, right? Meanwhile, this guy's making money podcasting in his basement and people are losing their jobs and their livelihoods and their businesses. And I just, it, it was all talk and no action. And then when you add the fundraising element into it, it's like, okay, so what, it's just a grift. It's the same political grift, just on a smaller scale. It's no different than the DNC or the RNC. It's just on a different scale. And it's a whole lot of people that are trying to escape whatever's missing in their real lives and their regular lives to feel like there's something important in connection with this movement or political party or, or whatever it is. So I admittedly, and I antagonize them whenever <laughs> I, I come across them. Cause I like to remind them that it's just, it's just an all no action ideology. And that just disgusts me. It grosses me out. And I mean, I've met so many people over the last two years that are doing like real things. You know, I've, I've had people, say, oh, it's so great what you're doing, defending these businesses. That's really amazing. You're awesome. And I'm like, no, actually, the heroes are the businesses who stayed open, who took a right. real risk to stay open in the face of this lockdown when they were told they had to close. Those are the heroes. I'm just a guy who tried to help. But those are the people that I have tremendous admiration for. And then strangely enough, um, I guess in the interest of disclosure, she's going to be mad that I said this. But my wife is a huge Trump supporter. And I'm kind of ambivalent about Trump. I did not vote for him the first time. I voted for him the, uh, the second time because, like, between Biden and Trump, like, I think we all can be pretty comfortable now saying that one's clearly better than the other. Um, but a lot of the people that I met were MAGA people. The people that were actually, like, taking risks and really standing up to the government and pushing back on these lockdowns were like diehard MAGA people. Heck, I mean, being, being diehard a MAGA person can, that in itself can be a very risky to your livelihood, even before lockdowns or anything like that. It got to the point where being openly MAGA, that was, that's what was already a risk. It is. Yes. Well, I mean, I, just the other day, I got in some kerfuffle on Twitter with some libertarians. It's like, if you really want to know who the people in power are afraid of, look at how they treat you. They ignore libertarians altogether. They couldn't be less interested in libertarians because libertarians are no threat to them. You know, they're calling the MAGA people insurrectionists and domestic terrorists. You know who they're worried about. And I really like these MAGA people. Like, they're really nice and they're really fun people. And like, if you're going to go like hang out at a barbecue, 10 out of 10 times, I'll go hang out at a barbecue with a bunch of MAGA people before a bunch of libertarians. You know, the libertarian people reminded me of all the progressives that I did everything I could to get away from in my life. And they were generally very unlikable and self-interested. And these MAGA people had such a sense of community and, you know, caring for their own town and wanting to make a difference and like willingness to take action. Um, you know, so I just got very, very disgusted with the whole like libertarian thing. And I think the part of it that irritates me the most is just the aggressiveness of the 
The aggressiveness, sorry, somebody's stuck their head in the door. The aggressiveness of the rhetoric combined with the utter inaction to me is so phony and fake and gross. And um, with this weird intellectual superiority where like, I don't know if other people have had this experience, but I've noticed how much like libertarians always want to tell you what books you should read and brag about what books they've read. And like, okay, I'm a pretty well-educated person. I'm a college, I'm a college graduate. I was an English major. So I read a lot of books. You know, I graduated from law school with honors. I mean, I'm, you know, probably above average in terms of, of, of education. And, but all they want to do is lecture you about books, what books you should read. I went to, um, I went to the um, Renegade University event in Texas, which was a wonderful event. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I talked at, at one point about some of this stuff that I've been doing in my frustration with libertarianism. And it was such a classic moment because this one guy ran up to me afterwards. He's like, well, I have this book you should read. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I don't care what book you want to tell me to read. Like, what are you going to do in your own community? Like, what are you going to do? Do something. You know, and again, these are not popular positions to take. I'm not a fan of the whole like BLM Antifa thing, but I'll tell you what, when they said they hated the cops, they went to Seattle and stormed a police station. You'll never see a libertarian do that. You know, the MAGA people, you can disagree with what they did or how they did it, but the MAGA people stormed the damn Capitol. You'll never see some anti-state libertarian do that. They would never take that kind of risk. They, they don't have they're, they're, they don't have the courage to do that. And again, whether you agree with it or not, like you know, I don't agree with, with the the whole like BLM Antifa violent protest, you know, burning down cities and all that kind of stuff. But you you have to give them some measure of respect that they had the courage of their convictions and they took to the streets and they did something. It's not the thing that I would want them to do, but it's but they did something. And the same thing, you know, in many ways, I think the January sixth event was very futile in terms of what it accomplished and maybe even counterproductive. But I mean, you got to tip your hat to a million people going to Washington and, or however many people it was, and some of them breaching the Capitol itself. I mean, you know, if, if you really believe that an election was stolen through fraud, what's, what's the real, what's the appropriate reaction to that? Um, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not, you know, sitting in your basement and telling people what books they should read. Um, so um, I like to call them out for what I see as their phoniness and the, 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 the grift of, of, of libertarianism, um, because I just, I cannot stand the extreme rhetoric combined with the constant inaction and inactivity. Um, and I just think, you know, it's been, it's not going anywhere. I mean, if, if the world was suddenly going to wake up to ideas of libertarianism, I think that it would have happened by now. Um, so it was a fairly quick journey for me. It was a matter of a few months for me to kind of gravitate away, uh, away from it. But I'm glad I kind of went down that road because it made me really think through some ideas of my own and what I think. And I think it recommitted me to the idea of I don't need to be a part of a movement and I don't need to be a part of some political exercise. All I need to do is help people that I can help. And what my dalliance with the uh, libertarian political world really gave me was some clarity on the idea that I don't need to be a part of some political movement or political organization that 
it's actually much more important and much more meaningful to just do what I can with the resources that I have to help people one person at a time and every person whose life you can affect in a way that leads to a more positive place for them. That in and of itself is a victory. Like, I think sometimes we swing for the fences of these giant ideas of like, we're going to find liberty in our time or peace in our time or whatever these things are that we attach ourselves to. And we forget that our eyes don't really need to be up here all the time. They need to be down here on the ground with the people all around us in our own communities. I think those are great words to wrap things up on. I don't think anybody out there can accuse you. They can accuse you of talking. They could accuse you of that, but they can't accuse you of being someone who doesn't take action. That's for sure. So um, before we wrap up, Anthony, might just let everybody know out there if they're there's someone that wants to get in touch with you, or especially if they are someone in California, perhaps someone facing a vaccine-related issue, a mandate-related issue there, how they can best reach out to you and uh, law firm. The law firm is Ramondo & Associates in Fresno, California. Our office phone number is area code 559-432-3000. Our website is www.ramondoassociates.com. Um, and you can always message me on Twitter at uh, 49 Acres of Freedom. Um, I'll probably irritate you on Twitter, but that's okay. I'll just apologize in advance. All right, Anthony Raimondo, thank you so much for joining the show. Keep up the great work. I don't have to tell you twice to keep on roaring. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anthony Raimondo. Certainly does ruffle some feathers, I will say that. Uh, But the man is doing the work. The man is really doing the work out there, not just checking boxes, not just clocking hours and saying, look at all this work I've done, but actually doing work that affects people's lives each and every day. So I did want to highlight Anthony here today because he's a real lion. He's, He's out there hunting, hunting those damn statist gazelles. He's not just sitting back and and letting the world happen to him, which I truly appreciate and respect. And that is really one of the major themes of this show. That is one of the things that you'll see most, if not all of my guests share a commonality in here on Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire. Don't forget, you have so many options of how to listen to this show. You can listen to it on the Lions of Liberty network feed where you get everything. You get myself, you get Brian on his soon to be rebranded, but currently still called Electric Liberty Land, as well as John every Thursday on his tremendous program, Finding Freedom. You get them all on the Lions of Liberty network feed. Lovely, lovely place to be. Uh, But if you just want to support one of us, of course, we want you to support all of us. But if there's one of us you want to hear more of than the other and want to support a little bit more, you can subscribe to our individual feeds. Mine is called Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire. Either way, we really, really appreciate those five-star ratings and those excellent reviews. They help us all across the board. Of course, you can also check out my writing when I get to it. I have been a slouch as of the last week or two. You can find that over at Substack, markclair.substack.com. It is called Metanoia. I promise I'll be getting back on that a little bit more very soon. That does it for this week, kitties. Until next time, you know, I only have one request. It's not that hard. You just gotta live long and live free and live free and live free and live free. And live free. And live free.